I live on the streets. When they meet me, people wonder why. I've made up all sorts of lies and occasionally told the truth. Even rarer, somebody believes me. I finally decided to set it down in writing, to record it for after I pass on, and so that I don't have to repeat the story. Next time somebody asks, they can simply listen to this. Most people just walk past a homeless person. Some will give spare change, that's rare these days, with fewer people carrying cash, but there are enough kind people willing to go into shops for me that I get by, barely. And even more rarely, somebody will stop to talk to me. Most homeless people I know don't ask. We've all experienced trauma of some kind, and we generally don't like to talk about it. My story is unusual, though. I'm very articulate, and I'm fluent in English, French, Mandarin, German, and Yoruba, with a decent understanding of Swedish, Korean, and Swahili. I'm also very good at talking my way out of situations and persuading people to find common ground. With all these skills, people who talk to me ask, why aren't I, for example, a well-paid translator or diplomat? The answer is simple, because those jobs take place indoors. For the last seven years, I've lived on the streets of a city in West Africa. I won't name it. I get by on the charity of others and doing gardening jobs and a bit of bricklaying, in the early stages of construction, at least. I have to bail on those jobs when houses are nearing completion, as you'll see. But I grew up in Northern England. My parents were, are, fairly wealthy, and I attended a private school. Not one you'll likely have heard of, but my education was excellent. My life was going very well. I had plenty of friends, and I was getting good grades in science, French, and Latin. I had won a few minor piano competitions, and enjoyed skiing holidays in Switzerland most years. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm boasting. That's not my intention. I'm just presenting my life as it was, so that you'll fully understand the contrast, and so that you'll understand I had no reason to run from it. You see, just after my 13th birthday, after school on a Friday in June, I was supposed to meet some friends in a coffee shop in town. I was there first, and feeling very grown up, and wanting to show off when they arrived, I ordered a latte. So there I was, sitting alone with my coffee, scrolling through Twitter, when a woman approached me. She was 40, maybe 50 years old, with long dark hair and wore what looked like it would have been a very nice business suit ten years earlier. Now it was ragged, with holes and dark stains. She sat herself down, opposite of me, and stared at me. I tried to ignore her at first. After a minute or so, I looked up, and with an annoyed tone, asked, Yeah, what do you want? Her response was just three short words. I'm so sorry. And then she reached out and touched my hand stood up and walked away. I'd never seen her before, and I haven't seen her again since. Now this, of course, puzzled me. She probably had me confused with somebody else, I told myself. It was a weird encounter, sure, but it was over, and it was at least a good story to tell my friends. When they turned up, I was probably a bit more rattled than I admitted to myself, and I had another sip of my coffee and stood up to go to the toilet. 10 meter walk to the toilet, and that was the last time I was ever in England. I pushed open the toilet door, walked through, and was hit in the face by freezing snow. I don't know where I was back then. In shock, I turned around to go back through the door, but there was no door there. 
Instead, I was in a field of white. It took me a moment to realize that it was a snowstorm and that I was outside. I don't think I panicked. I didn't understand what had happened, or how, but I calmly assessed the situation. I was outside, in the cold and the snow, wearing my summer school uniform, shorts and all, with no idea where the nearest shelter was. I could figure out what had happened later, for now I needed to survive. Looking around, visibility was not as bad as I feared. It was daytime, the snow was falling straight down rather than the storm I assumed at first, and I could make out a neat line of trees in the distance. That probably meant a road, and a road meant civilization, so off I headed, across what seemed like a farmer's field. And in five minutes, I was indeed on a road. There were no signs that I could make out, so I picked a direction at random and started walking. After about half an hour, I saw light in the distance. I had been shivering for some time, but I felt alert, so I didn't think I was at immediate risk of hypothermia. I kept going and soon arrived at a small cottage with lights on in the downstairs windows. A man answered my earnest knocking on the front door. He spoke a few words in a language I didn't know. I pushed into the house, wanting to get in from the cold before explaining myself. And then I was on a beach. It took a moment to get over the shock of the sweltering heat. I blinked in the bright midday sun and looked around as my eyes started to adjust. I heard the sounds of people splashing in the water and generally having fun. A dark-skinned man in shorts and a t-shirt was running towards me, asking if I was okay. I suppose I looked quite bewildered and out of place, and was probably the only person nearby still shivering. Still confused, but relieved that he spoke French a language I understood fairly well. I looked at him and tried to explain what was happening, but truthfully, I didn't know what was happening. I just stared at him dumbstruck. He introduced himself as Lewis. I managed to stammer out a, where am I? To which he replied that I was on a beach near Pohopas. With me still barely able to articulate myself, Lewis offered his help. He asked where my parents were, and when I couldn't answer, he led me to his car, saying that he could drive me to his house and we could figure things out from there. I've since learned that this was a very unwise move. Pohapas in Haiti is one of the most crime-ridden cities on the planet. Murders and kidnappings are common, and there's a good chance Lewis intended to traffic me. But I didn't realize that at the time, and I certainly wasn't thinking straight. I followed Lewis up the beach, where he led me to a small car and opened the passenger door for me. I climbed into the car and fell quite hard onto the tarmac of a town in the early evening. Now bear in mind that I was 13 years old at the time. In the span of about two hours, I'd been accosted by a strange woman, trekked through the snow in my shorts, led up a sweltering beach by a stranger, and to top it off, I now had a severely bruised behind. So I think my response to these events was entirely reasonable given the circumstances. I cried. I looked around, found an out-of-the-way alley, hid myself behind some bins, and cried myself to sleep. Somebody woke me by talking loudly. I opened my eyes to see two police, a white man and a white woman standing over me. I knew German only enough to identify the language, not to understand what they were saying, but as I stood up in the early morning, I suppose they saw my school uniform and the woman started speaking English. Apparently, somebody had seen me there a child sleeping rough and called the police. The policeman was very kind. She asked a lot of questions. Had I lost my school tour group? Where was I staying? 
that I know my parents' phone number. I mumbled half-answers to her questions, and her colleague motioned behind them, to the police car I now saw at the end of the alleyway. It was only now that I realized what was happening. Doors were cursed, for me at least. If I tried to get into the police car, who knows where I would end up. For a split second, I considered trying to explain things to them, before settling on, again, the only reasonable course of action. It's hard to run from the police, especially when they know the city and you don't, but I was still quite small and I got lucky. I ran down the alley, turned left into a smaller alley, and saw a chain-link fence a short distance along. A hole had been torn through the bottom, probably by somebody doing something like me, and I dived down and crawled through. My school blazer caught the fence, and I struggled to escape. The police had almost caught me by the time I managed to wriggle out of it, and I ran off, leaving the blazer behind. Good riddance, I thought. It made me far too identifiable anyway. I ran for maybe half an hour, ripping my tie off. Now, just dressed in gray shorts and a white shirt, I looked a bit less like a schoolboy. It was Saturday, and I was just another German kid out looking for his friends. Germans don't go to school on Saturday mornings, right? I wondered. Whatever the case, I didn't find any more trouble that morning. I still had $30 for coffee and shopping, and I followed the crowd until I found a small street market. One stall owner was happy to take my money for a pair of jeans, a t-shirt, and a plain jumper, and gave me $10 back to buy a small lunch. I'm sure I was ripped off, but didn't really feel I had much choice. To answer the police's question, no, I didn't know my parents' number, and my phone was out of charge anyway. I needed a plan. I walked around town, which I learned was called Passau, and found an out-of-the-way bridge near the river. I decided to stay here, at least this evening. It was still early, but I was exhausted and just needed to rest after the insanity of only, I realized, 24 hours. It was getting dark when I was roused from dozing. I was sitting against a wall in a 90-degree corner when somebody found me. After a similar exchange to the one I'd had that morning, he spoke in broken English. Victor was 16 and had been on the streets of Passau for about a month. His mom had left years before, and his dad had kicked him out of his home when he found out Victor was gay. I hadn't realized that sort of thing still happened. I suppose I had, until that day, lived a, pardon the pun, sheltered life. Victor was bigger than me and knew the city. He hadn't lived on the streets that long, but was far more streetwise than I was, and he showed me how to survive. Over the next few months, I learned where to steal food, where to beg, where the driest shelters were, and even how to pickpocket. Passau has a small homeless community, but a closer one, and I got to know some people very well. It's fair to say that by the time my 14th birthday rolled around, I was much more aware and capable. I learned German and practiced my French with a fellow migrant. I learned how to repair clothes and how to haggle with the street vendors. I was still small for my age and found that I could wriggle into and hide in very tight spaces. In short, I proved myself to be useful to the homeless community in Passau. Useful enough that others were happy to indulge my little eccentricities, and would go into shops for me when I needed to buy something. I got blankets and a sleeping bag for winter, and Victor would even charge my phone for me in coffee shops and pubs. It wasn't the life I was used to, but it would be a life and I had companionship. This all changed after I'd been in Germany just over a year. 
In the early evening, about an hour before kickoff at the European Championship, Germany was about to play Spain and there was plenty of people in the pubs getting drunk. Easy pickings for a thief. Victor and I had been working together for a year and we carried out our well-rehearsed routine. We hung around a busy street until I saw two men come out of the pub, one of them putting his wallet into his back pocket as he left. Perfect. I signaled to Victor and started walking behind them. After a few moments, Victor bumped into him from the side, giving me the opportunity to lift his wallet, but his friend had turned his head to look behind him at just the wrong moment. He shouted, and the two of them turned to me. I ran, and Victor ran the other way, but the two men ignored him. I had a head start, and I thought I could outrun them, but one was gaining on me. In a split second, I decided that it would be easier to hide in a crowd. I ran for the door of the packed pub the two men had just left. I pushed the door open and hurled through. I arrived in Nanjing at night. Of course, I didn't know this at the time, but it was a fairly busy street, and I saw the Chinese characters on the street signs. I won't go into a blow-by-blow -blow account of my time there, which lasted about a year and a half, but in many respects, it was similar to my time in Germany. In a way, I was getting used to this. Living on the streets is more or less the same in any country. Nanjing is a much larger city than Passau and quite prosperous, but every city has its down and outs. I sought out the homeless, and while it took me a while longer than Germany, I learned the language and the culture of the place. If you google it, you might think Nanjing is pretty safe. For the most part that's true, but sleeping on the street is no safer there than anywhere else. I found safety in a street gang, putting the skills I'd learned in petty theft and pickpocketing to use. People come and go on the streets, but I ran with a group of five or six younger people while I was there, even having a bit of a thing with Yihan, a girl a couple years older than me. We would do what we called hit and run. We'd all accost somebody out alone, steal their wallet, and run in different directions. The others met up in an abandoned warehouse, some way out from the center of town, and they got used to my weird insistence on staying outside and sleeping elsewhere. Nanjing has a heavier police presence than Passau, but my colleagues knew where they didn't go, and I did quite well. Until one night in March. We were stalking a couple of drunk men in their thirties and were about to make our practiced move when another group arrived to do the same. I saw the situation developing and signaled my people to move out. Our competitors followed us down a side street. They clearly wanted a fight, and two of my friends did as well. I was happy to call it a night and managed to talk them down from a confrontation when Yi Chang, who was also a bit trigger-happy, threw a punch at one of the others. Three of them pulled knives from their coats. One stabbed Yi Chen in the gut, and the others went for the rest of us. I ran. I was the fastest in our group, but one of them was faster than me. He nearly caught me. Seeing no other option, I legged it toward the main street and made my way to a shop. The staff were just closing up, but I didn't need to get there in time. I just needed to pass the threshold. I made it through the door. This time I landed in Sweden, in the middle of the countryside. It was nearly afternoon and sunny, so I walked until I found a road and followed signs to Yetaboli. That was fifteen kilometers, and a few drivers offered me a lift along the way, though obviously I declined. I was in a way starting to feel quite confident now. I'd relocated twice and felt that I knew what to do. Sweden is a nice place, even for the homeless, especially if you're young and white. 
Strangers were generally kind, and I did well there. However, it can get very cold in the streets in winter, and when snow started to fall, I realized I wasn't likely going to survive until spring. So, in November, for the first time, voluntarily, I walked through a shop door and into another country. It didn't help. From the mild first snow of a Swedish winter, I arrived in a forest in freezing temperatures. I'd gone from mid-afternoon in Sweden to evening, so I guessed it was somewhere in Russia, but I couldn't say. After looking around for a bit, I couldn't find any sign of civilization, so I decided to test my curse. Did that woman, three years earlier, curse me? She had seemed strange, but not unkind. Perhaps she simply realized, before I did, that I'd been cursed by someone or something else. I didn't know, not back then, but I knew a bit about how it worked. I collected some fallen logs and branches, and over about an hour, I built a rectangular frame, a doorway. I stepped through. Nothing happened. I arrived on the other side of the doorway. Okay, so that didn't work. Maybe it needed to be an actual door. I could hardly build hinges in the forest, even if I knew how. So instead, I gathered some vines and leaves, and strung them into a hanging door from the top like a beaded curtain. Honestly, I was quite proud of my handiwork. For a first attempt with no tools, I was very impressed, and also reluctant to test it. But it was cold and dark and starting to rain, so I stepped through it. It worked, and my next stop was Kenya. I found myself in the countryside on a warm evening on a farm. I judged that it was a long way to the city and learned that I was correct, so I decided to introduce myself to the farmers. They spoke barely any English, and I didn't speak any Swahili, but I managed to persuade the family that ran the farm to let me work for them. I'm sure they didn't understand my motivations, but they were friendly and happy with the arrangement. Over the next two years, I learned how the farm worked, built up my muscles. I'm still small and wiry, but strong, and proved myself to be an able worker. I picked coffee beans, milked cows, fixed fences, and acquired a decent tan. I occasionally made the journey to a nearby market town, sitting in the back of one of the flatbed trucks. I was certainly a curiosity to the locals, but I was treated well. I would happily have stayed on that Kenyan farm for life, but after two years, something happened. The farmer of the household was off at the market, and the rest of us were working the fields. I was bringing several baskets of coffee beans to the barn, and then I heard shouting, someone screaming for help. The mother of the household, Anissa, had fallen in the kitchen. From outside, I could tell that her leg was bad. It was bleeding severely, and I think I could see bones sticking out. It was rare that there was just one person in the farmhouse, but it did happen. The closest help was probably at least ten minutes away, and Anissa was bleeding too fast. I was the only one who could help, but I needed to get in there, somehow. Obviously the door was out of the question, but the kitchen window was wide open. Were windows safe? The answer, it turned out, was no. I hope Anissa got the help she needed, though I doubt it. But the last I saw of her, as I swung a leg into the kitchen, was an expression of abject terror, and then she and the farmhouse disappeared, replaced in an instant with the nighttime streets of Seoul. Again, I had to start over, and again, I had to learn a new language. English isn't well spoken in Korea, and it took some time before I could get on. I made a few friends, and supported myself largely by stealing and pickpocketing, 
Without the kind of network I'd built up in Germany and China, things were more difficult. I got caught a few times and escaped before anything serious happened. Until after about a year. I guess that the police had gotten a few reports of the street thefts in my area. I noticed an increased police presence and one day, I just got sloppy. A couple were having coffee outside a cafe at lunchtime. The man's wallet was on the table between them and I was hungry. I pulled my hoodie over my face, ran and grabbed the wallet. While I was running away, I pulled the cash out and threw the wallet on the ground. Then ten minutes later, the police found me. I'd found another cafe with outdoor services. It wasn't far enough away and I guess I hadn't hidden my face as well as I thought. I wasn't in a tourist area and it was pretty easy to identify the only white man around, especially as I was wearing the same clothes. I saw two police walking towards me and started to run, but this time they were faster. They tackled me to the ground and bundled me into their patrol car. It was dark, too dark to see anything. At first, I assumed I was on the other side of the world at night, but as my eyes adjusted, I realized I was underground. I was in a vast cavern. There was minimal light coming from a few burning torches in the distance. The ground was rough but solid, and the air was chilly, but no colder than the average night on the street in most towns. I could make out very little at first and decided to head towards the torches while I figured out what my new situation was. As I got closer, I realized the torches surrounded a pit and I could make out people under the torches. Some of them looked up as I approached, but they didn't say anything. All were inside the pit, which I could now see covered a rough square maybe 30 meters to a side. And then I heard something else. A kind of chittering. To the side, I saw creatures. Not human, nor like any animal I'd ever seen before. They were about a meter tall and walked on four chitinous legs with two arms in front of them. Their bodies were black and glossy, and their heads had large jaws and mandibles. In science class years ago, we had stag beetles in a fish tank. These creatures reminded me of those. The beetles came towards me. There were six of them, and while they were smaller than me, they quickly overpowered me, all while making horrific clicking and chittering sounds. They took me to the edge of the pit. Two more beetles standing there pushed a long wooden ramp down into the pit, and the others pushed me down it, and then took the ramp back up. I was stuck, or so it seemed. The walls were too high and smooth to climb easily, and I now noticed several more beetles standing guard at intervals along the wall. Even if I got out, I had no idea where I was or what kind of problem I found myself in this time. The humans I was with numbered about 50, quite diverse but young. There were teenagers and people in their 20s, but no older. At 19, I was pretty much in the middle age-wise. A woman approached me and started speaking French. Great, at least I could understand her. It's impossible to tell time down in that underground cavern, but I gathered it was about the start of their effective nighttime. The woman, who introduced herself as a Parisian named Josie, explained that the beetles used them for labor and other things. They kept them fed and made them work for half the day, but otherwise more or less left them alone. Josie introduced me to the others, showed me to the food, almost exclusively berries and mushrooms, and told me to fill my belly and rest as well as I could, as I would be put to hard work the next day. She was right. The next day I was awoken by a human, Carl, shaking me. 
The beetles had already set up the ramp and were bringing us up in groups of four. I had no intention of being used as a slave, but decided against taking action until I'd figured things out a bit more. My group was led down a maze of tunnels for about 20 minutes until we arrived at a broader cave, though much smaller than the main cavern. One of the beetles had a flat piece of slate on which they had drawn a chalk diagram. They may not be able to speak human languages, but they can hold things with their front limbs and draw. It pointed to each of us in turn, then to a pair of drawings, then to the area of the cave. Jerome, a dark-skinned man from Senegal, explained what I had already figured out. The beetles wanted us to excavate the cave, according to the plan on the slate. There were some crude pickaxes and other tools already in the cave. I looked at the sharp, heavy tools and looked at the two small beetles. Jerome mouthed no to me. I learned later that people have tried that before, and they always ended up dead. The creatures were stronger than they looked. So I got to work pickaxing and chiseling out the room for the insects. After maybe an hour, the beetles left. Sandy, a Canadian girl of 15, told me that while we could speak freely, the tunnels were maze-like. She had run once, but if there were anywhere to go, she hadn't found it. The beetles had left a few torches for us to work by, but they had much better night vision than we did, and while we could get lost in the tunnels, they could seemingly make their way just fine in complete darkness. I think insects lay trails using pheromones as well, so they don't even need to see in the tunnels. And so it continued for a long time. I carved out cave rooms, made what I believe was insect furniture, but I still don't know where they got the wood, and even worked a forge. We marked our days by our rest periods, and long ago, somebody had started scratching lines into the wall of the pit to mark each day. As had become tradition, I scratched my name above the day I arrived. This was day 11,408 since the calendar had started, 31 years earlier. We spent our evenings telling stories, true stories of our lives outside, stories we could remember reading, and stories we made up ourselves during the long working days. I suggested singing once, but was shot down immediately. Apparently the Beatles really didn't like human songs. Just like living on the streets, people come and go. Haruki, a Japanese man of 25, was crushed by a falling rock in an excavation. I wasn't in the same group, but I heard the screams echoing through the corridors. In accordance with our tradition, we scratched his name below the line for that day. Arrivals are marked above, and departures, as we euphemistically called deaths, below the timeline. Jason appeared after a few months, followed shortly by Lewis in much the same way I had. And then Caroline, a 16-year-old girl from Mexico, lost it when we were being corralled into a pit at the end of the day. Everyone can snap if they're pushed too far, and as she reached the ramp, Caroline screamed and shouted and then ran into the darkness. Some of the insects followed her, and this is when I learned how fast they can move. They caught up with Caroline after only a few seconds and dragged her to the edge of the pit pinning her down until the rest of us were all the way in there and they had pulled up the ramp. More beetles had arrived, and then, in full view of all of us, they ripped her apart. Her flesh tore as mandibles slashed into her body. I watched, incapable of helping but unable to look away, as she screamed in agony until her windpipe was severed, and then they started to eat her. It took about ten minutes in all, and at the end there was nothing left. No sign that anything had happened except for the blood that trickled down the wall of the pit. 
We saw and heard it all. The rending of flesh, the crunching of bone, the chittering of the insects and what I could only interpret as excitement. When they were finished, the beetle stood on the wall, looked down on us, and walked away like nothing had happened. We were in shock, of course. There were no stories told that evening. In fact, nobody spoke as Carl scratched Caroline below the mark for that day. We went to sleep in silence, though I don't know if any of us actually slept that night. I certainly didn't. The next day continued as normal. We worked in subdued silence. We returned to the pit. We ate our meager meals of berries and fungi. I was the first to speak. My life down there wasn't great, but it was something I could get on with, something in which I could find a certain level of contentment, not any longer. So for the first time, I asked about the doors. Most of my fellows hadn't properly realized that doors were the triggers. It seemed like I was the only one who had traveled anywhere else. The underground realm was the first and only trip any of the others had made. Simon, a fellow Englishman, told me that he had once taken some items to the creatures' homes. They lived in carved caves, presumably mined out by the previous generation of human captives, and while he didn't understand their culture, they clearly had decorations. While there, he saw a large slate with a chalk face drawn on it, a human face, one that he didn't recognize, until Jenny had arrived a few days later. He hadn't mentioned this at the time, but it helped me start to put the pieces together, I think. I don't understand the curse, but I believe the creatures marked me. The other humans in that place hadn't traveled around like I did. Their first trips through a door took them to the underground. I think the woman in the coffee shop recognized that I was marked and tried to help. I think when she touched me, she disrupted the curse, randomizing my destination. And I thought back to the time I tried to help Anissa back in the Kenyan farmhouse, and the look on her face as I portaled away. I wonder what she had seen as I disappeared. This was interesting, but it didn't really help us. Then I talked about my travels, how any door or even window acted as a portal, how I had created my own, and it didn't work until I put a door into the doorway, and gradually we formed a plan. Most of the floor of the pit was made out of smooth stone but there was a small area of earth a couple of meters away. Our captors rarely came down into the pit. They threw food down from above. We carried waste out in buckets, and they didn't need to come down to bring us up, as they would simply withhold food if we refused, as Jerome recalled from years earlier. It was a simple plan, but a slow one. Over the next few months, we smuggled tiny bits of stone, wood, and whatever else we could hide on our person. First, we'd build a wooden board, just small enough to cover the soil. One person would dig out soil from below the board, while the rest of us kept watch. The beetles have small eyes, and although their night vision is excellent, I don't think they can see very well at a distance, relying more on smell. So, if we were careful, we could work without being noticed, and we were careful. If we were caught at any stage of the plan, it would be game over. We worked for less than an hour each night, covering the hole with the board and hiding the board with soil. Extracted earth went little by little with our waste buckets. After some time, we hit solid rock, but the hole was now about a meter and a half deep. It was enough. Phase two of the plan was riskier. Carving into the solid sections of the wood with sharp rocks made a sound a lot like the beetle's screech, and we knew they had good hearing. We only dared do a tiny bit each night 
but eventually we had a frame and a door. All we needed now was a hinge. Slowly, we scraped out three holes along one side of the door and tied it to the frame with some braided roots we had gathered from the caves. It was done. I doubted it would hold together for long, but it didn't need to. We held a quiet celebration as much as we could down there, and Lewis carved a final message at the end of the timeline. Fuck you. Sandy volunteered to be the first to test it. For all fifty of us to make it, we would need to move fast, and this is why we decided to use a trap door. It would be quicker to jump down one after another than to wriggle horizontally through a doorway that size. We checked the surroundings, and seeing only a couple of beetles not paying much attention to us, we decided on our order. I was number 14. Sandy carefully uncovered the trap door, opened it, jumped down, and disappeared. It worked. Trying to contain our excitement, we followed through in our agreed order. As number 11 jumped in, I heard chittering from above. They had noticed something, but we could do nothing about that. We kept filing in until I jumped down. This is when I arrived in Western Africa, where I've lived for the last seven years and where I hope to live the rest of my natural life. Thirteen others had entered the portal before me, but they were nowhere to be seen. I guess, I hope, that they are living safely elsewhere, away from the clutches of those monstrous slavers. I pray every night that those behind me in line got away before the creatures reached us, but I haven't heard from them. I'm not sure how I could, unless one of them is hearing this. I still don't know how that woman in the coffee shop knew about me. Perhaps she herself had been there, in that cave, or after one, and escaped it. It would make sense, given the state of her clothes, or maybe she's something else. A psychic, perhaps. She could walk through doors, and maybe I can now, too. Maybe when I left the underground realm, the curse was broken, but I don't dare risk it. Maybe one day I'll see somebody else who was marked and recognize them. I could hardly warn them of the danger. Nobody would believe me, but I can touch their skin and disrupt the curse. I've escaped, but the insect things are still there, and who knows how many other colonies they have. It's hard to get exact figures, but in the United States alone, 6,000 people a year go missing and are never found. How many of them are trapped, underground, enslaved by a species that regards humans as nothing more than a source of labor and food? Hey.